0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 13th of April as we record. We are back in the FT studios after last week's Easter enforced encampment. And we have a pared down team this week. Joining me in said studio is Ideas Editor Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm not bad. And yourself? All good. All good. Fresh from running into the office today, as you revealed just now, <laughs> raring yeah. to go.
2: It's quicker than 63, boss.
1: And further afield, over the phone from Edinburgh, is Consumer Industries writer Chris Akers. Hi, Chris. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Very well, very well. We're going to talk about Tesco in our result of the week. We will also discuss the concept of greedflation, which has made its way into policy circles lately. That's quote-unquote inflation. Uh, And we're going to look at whether the likes of consumer staples really are price gouging and examine what all of that might mean for investors. Then we turn to another consumer-facing business, Pisa Cousins, which had a trading update today. It's not all shopping, though. We're also going to be chatting about our cover story this week, written by Alex, which attempts to establish what the next big market story might be, following on from tech's dominance over the past decade. We start, however, with Tesco, full-year figures out this morning. Chris, once again, they look pretty good under the circumstances.
0: Yeah, it was quite a resilient performance from Tesco. As you'd guessed from the market reaction this morning, the shares were up by over 2%. So higher prices drove revenues up uh, by 7% in the year, but profits more than halved to just a billion pounds this time around because of inflationary cost pressures and almost a billion pounds of impairment charges due to higher interest rates. And that was mostly on property assets. Um, But yeah, quite quite a strong set of results. I think one reason is Tesco's strong value proposition. The company said it's currently the most competitive it's ever been on prices. It's inflated behind the market and it's sort of maintained market share through doing that. Got several um, things on the go, like the Aldi price match and its club card price approach. Um takes around 27% of UK market share and is actually the only full-line grocer to have grown share against pre-pandemic levels. Um, and analysts seem quite bullish on management's guidance for, for this new 2024 financial year. Barclays called it reassuring, which I think is right. Um, so the board expects flat retail cash profits this year, and that's just ahead of, of market consensus. And also expects retail free cash flow to come in uh, within target. So I think given cost pressure is a pretty
1: strong set of results. Yeah, as you say, I think the, the EBIT was coming in for the next financial year, anticipated to be flat, which, yeah, as with everything now, is in the context that is a, a good result because there is a lot of pressure on the likes of, of Tesco, given food inflation is still at elevated double-digit levels. Uh Booker as well, something we've talked about Tesco in the past on this show. We don't always talk about Booker, the uh, uh, catering side, if you will, or the, the business that feeds into the catering side. That had a, a very strong year as well, which chimes with what we've seen from a slightly different angle, but the likes of Compass in recent months too, catering, pretty big growth driver at the moment.
0: Yeah, so Booker sales were up by 12%. That was a standout for Tesco in the year. So, say, yeah, Booker sales up at around 87 Billion um, on the on the back of catering market share gains, and Tesco took uh, over 450 net new retail partners in the year. The company pointed to higher out of home consumption after the pandemic as one driver behind that.
1: Yeah, the sort of out of home in home dynamic for Tesco is interesting. Booker uh, addresses one side of that clearly as a supermarket. Most of the attention is on the in-home side of things. There was a, a note from Jeffries uh, the other day, which we uh, I think we're discussing beforehand, talking about you know the the current pressures on the UK consumer and and how, given the relative resilience of retail sales, it looks like grocers are taking a decent share of that, or perhaps a growing share as some out-of-home activities are scaled back and people perhaps overcompensate. That's not meant pejoratively by spending a bit more on kind of in-home goods. So that that might be a, a string to Tesco and other supermarkets' bow sorely needed one in the uh, in the months ahead.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, it's an interesting trend, as, as Jeffrey's points out, due to sort of cost of living pressures, etc. Um, so, grocers have taken some share from from out of home for the first time in, in a couple of years, I think tesco but yeah there's, there's a lot going on there so tesco for example flags in in the results that uk retail volumes were actually down because of higher levels of in-home consumption last year so there are some very tough comparatives to to deal with here even though things could be moving in the right direction
1: mm, that is true i suppose the the start of 2022 was still a very much a pandemic-affected times, so so those comparators will be difficult. But, but yes, there there is some sort of hard data here. I think the Jeffries note was based on Barclay card uh, sales, uh, and also Tesco's own market share data is based on Cantar figures, so it is not just the company, not solely the company, blowing uh, its own trumpet. But the year ahead, there are other challenges, some of which, again, we've discussed before, but the most crucial obviously relate to food inflation and how Tesco both deals with that, but also deals with suppliers. Uh, and that, I think, could be a particular issue in the weeks and months ahead, partly because of this, this topic we'll come on to in a bit more detail in a minute. This idea that companies are uh, not just protecting margins, but using inflation to raise margins. Uh, there are a couple of academic papers on this focused on the US earlier this year, but that, that concept if you will, of greedflation has uh, started to percolate in in central bank circles even as well. Both the Bank of England and the European Central Bank have talked about it in recent weeks, which makes a bit of a change from the the wage price spiral uh, emphasis that they had before. To cut a long story short from Tesco's point of view, you know they're at the forefront of price rises in most consumers' minds. That's where consumers see the significant increases in the price of goods in most cases. They obviously will therefore putting as much pressure as they can on suppliers and even more so as commodity prices start perhaps to to roll off or to roll over this year. Uh, We've seen that last year with Heinz and Tesco. Could we see more of the same this year? Was there much in there today, Chris, about the pressure they're trying to put on suppliers, talking a good game perhaps?
0: Yeah, well, the chief executive, Ken Murphy, referenced this in, in the results. He spoke about the unprecedented levels of inflation in the prices we have paid our suppliers for their products. And, and as you say, there's a lot going on behind the scenes behind the big grocers like, like Tesco and suppliers. Um, ex- examples, as you say, like like Heinz last year. And there has been some controversy recently with Tesco. So the company told suppliers last month that they have to pay a new fulfillment fee when the supermarket sells its products online. And that really didn't go down well with with suppliers. Um in short, Shore Capital, interestingly, referred to this as a very uncharacteristic blunder by Tesco, and he said, we sense backtracking has been
1: immense, so that is something to watch going forward. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's perhaps a sign of, of all sides looking to eke out whatever they uh, they can in terms of, you know, revenue lines and in terms of making sure the bottom line is stable. Uh, as I say, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a second, but... I did see some suggestion before these results that the the buyback, the 750 million buyback which Tesco um, has restarted or announced today, might be delayed because of the kind of political pressures that might be coming on supermarkets. You know, maybe if last year was a story of energy price inflation, this year could be a story where uh, food price inflation is uh, at the forefront. And and as we know, the supermarkets have very thin margins. It's not really a suggestion that that Tesco has been uh, unduly hiking prices, but... Clearly, it also feels confident enough to carry on with that buyback uh, rather than trying to sneak it out to when the coast is slightly clearer, as it were.
0: Yeah, and, and the market obviously responded well to that to that buyback announcement today. Um, I, th- I think as a general point, it is important to say that obviously it's still a very difficult time for the grocers. As we mentioned earlier, food inflation is still very elevated. So the latest Cantar data showed that annual UK grocery prices were up by a record 17.5% in March. So it obviously isn't surprising that companies are trying to recover costs and, and inflation. But yeah, we'll come on to inflation, as you say.
1: Yeah, I think whenever we, whenever we talk about Tesco in the past year on this show, you know, the results have always been very good. In between that, because of the obvious pressures on the sector, the share price doesn't particularly, you know, go anywhere, even being flat is quite good in this environment. But that also probably supports the uh, the buyback, I think, as well, in that the company is confident it's throwing up a lot of cash, they're reasonably confident they're not buying shares at uh, what they would, or what many people would see as an overvalued level. So it supports that decision. Alex, we'll bring you in on Tesco. Well, what's your kind of overall sense of their, their performance, the the status of the company as it currently stands?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, as ever with grocers, it's a really delicate balance. I, I mean, I read through the results and it, it, it's not—it's hard not to admire Tesco's ability to, to turn a profit given the complexity of the job. You know, operationally, it's very impressive, even if the reward is, you know, is, is quite slight. On, the, I suppose on the political question, I would wonder what the attack line would be. Um, I mean, if we're talking about grocers in the round here uh, and Tesco is, you know, it's pretty indicative of, of the of the sector, given that they are the largest, uh, and they are um, you know they're kind of leading from the front on some of the measures they've introduced to combat the um, you know the rise, which has continued of the uh, of the German discounters. I mean, they made two billion pound free cash in uh, free cash flow this year against sixty six billion pounds of uh, retail sales and combines fuel, and that's gone up a lot in the last year. But I mean, it's not clear to me you know certainly compared to you know the water companies or the energy suppliers that these are in any way egregious profits. And when you look at some of the the stories come out the trade press and just the the relationship, the very very delicate balance that Tesco has to strike with its suppliers, um, it is clear that you know a lot of the profit is in the way they balance their their working capital um, uh, and also their you know their relationships with um, with the large suppliers. So I mean the, the, this story. Um, last week, I think it's first reported by the grocer, but it's picked up um, everywhere and confirmed by Tesco that they've they've told some of their suppliers, their largest suppliers, to to booker and the an online store that they're going to need to stop paying a a, a new fulfilment charge if they want to be on uh, Tesco shelves. I mean, their fulfilment costs are growing. Their their operations are are now so complex in in trying to meet this you know this everywhere all the time always on. Customer demand and across their enormous range, that they that they have taken the decision to basically extract fees from large suppliers, implicitly threatening that they're going to pull their products if they if they don't cough up. So clearly they don't want to raise prices retail prices for, uh, for customers, and it also suggest that also suggests to me that in the main they think some of their suppliers have protected their margins a bit more easily than they've been able to. So that jostle is going to play out, I think probably behind the scenes a bit more than than the you know the potential political football that we've we've seen some other sectors um become. Um that's that's my rough rough take on the on the yeah. business it's, it's, yeah.
1: I I think I would certainly agree with that. I suppose I was thinking perhaps thinking back to pandemic mutterings about whether you know those profits were uh you know that was kind of the first time for a while when we'd seen grocers come into that kind of political sphere. I didn't really get very far but some suggestion that those profits were were, uh, you know, potentially the target for a windfall. Now, given food price inflation is so high, you know, people are shocked when they look at the price of things on shelves. You could see it becoming a a, a political football, even though, as you say, you know, I think they're doing quite a creditable job and there's not really much they can do. Let, let's turn to some of those suppliers. Uh, this idea of, you know, uh, the, the margins are are, well, certainly, you know, they have an easier job of it on margins than, the supermarket's margins are typically quite a bit higher. But but the question of whether these margins are unjustly high and whether they're using high input costs to add a bit on top and passing that on, we had a look at the operating margin of the big consumer staples companies over the past couple of years uh, operating margins so that it factors in other rising costs, like staff costs, things like that. And, and they, have, they have come down by a couple of percentage points. In every case, whether it be... Uh, Heinz, who's attracted a lot of criticism, I think even Tesco, criticised them again this year, Uh, you know, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, companies like that. So there has been margin compression there, uh, which doesn't necessarily equate to the the theory that these companies are are taking a bit extra for themselves. Obviously, shareholders would probably uh, enjoy it if they were. Uh, I suppose the question is maybe, though, for me, what happens this year? Because it would seem more natural that the time at which companies can take advantage of this kind of thing is when their own input costs start to fall, but they are then slower to pass those price drops on. And really, once again, it's the likes of Tesco who are going to have to try and prevent that from happening. are going to try and have to press them very hard to make sure that these input falls, these falls in input prices are passed on to the consumer via Tesco, via the supermarkets. So I don't know if you ever take Alex on on the idea, you know, th- th- this is certainly a political topic uh, of increasing significance, if not necessarily something that's going to run and run or, or develop any further.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a t- it's a tough one. I mean, Hermione, who's away this week, she's she's written a piece for next week's issue on on greedflation. Mm-hmm. Um, I really agree with what she she's written on the uh, sort of diagnosing a true case of greedflation. In all of this is quite difficult, and that we've, you know, we've we've had both the ECB and the Bank of England signalling their suspicions around some companies' habit of expanding profit margins, you know, without facing a significant loss of market share. But um, but where the where the balance lies and the outlook for falling inflation, f- falling in- input costs this year sits, I mean, really, really, really hard to say. I mean, the one thing I think we can say is that. Um, you know i mean chris touched on it at the start i mean tesco's certainly not price gouging if you look at their their margins relative to the to the consumer staples groups i mean their adjusted operating profit margin at the re- in the retail business uh, declined 54 basis points to 3.8% and that's a big fall for such a, a thin margin business um so, yeah, I mean, Pantheon Economics, I think, wrote something saying they're seeing evidence of supermarkets widening margins. I, I mean, I can't really see it here in, in, in Tesco's results. Um, and their capacity to raise them over the next year, you know, going to be really challenged. Again, I mean, this is the this is the perennial issue for this business. They're probably about as important to the UK economy and society as, you know, Ministry of Defence, the NHS. I mean, they're that, it's that important a business, but it's... Um, um, you know how it gr- how it grows. what the value is to shareholders other than this? You know, enormous enormous sort of deposit of assets and uh, brand equity is kind. Of, it's kind of hard to see. That's why the investment case I think is always, you know, a little bit tricky to make with supermarkets.
1: Well, one company which has seen uh, a bit of margin pressure earlier this year is PZ Cousins. It's not a uh, directly related to food pricing of course though I'm sure there are some input costs there but it had a trading update today uh, and actually the news is a bit better there chris i mean at the half year stage there were concerns about falling margins in the us business they said at the time i think that you know the second half should see a recovery in that and from the trading update today for q3 that does seem to have been the case things are are looking a bit better in the in the major markets
0: yeah that's right so this was quite a strong third quarter update from PZ Cousins. Um, as was Tesco, the market responded favorably. The shares were up by 4% this morning after the uh, the update came out. Uh, reported revenues were up by quite a solid 13.5% and like-for-like sales were up by over 6%. Um, the company mentioned a significantly improved margin in Europe and the US, and that should reassure investors on, on those margin pressure concerns that you that you mentioned. Um, getting into a couple of the, the segments, um so it made quite an interesting acquisition last year, its first acquisition in, in a long time of a brand called Child's Farm, which is a baby and child personal care brand. Um, and the company mentioned this 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 is performing well. It's on track for double digit revenue growth for the full year. It also mentions that the Centropez Tan brands performed well, but also no surprise that the Carex uh, hand wash brands uh, sales, sales fell again as volumes continued to normalise after the pandemic.
1: I should say, for those who don't know, the company most well known for the likes of Imperial Leather and uh, personal hygiene products that obviously did very well during the pandemic. Uh, as you say, Chris, the the acquisition of a Child's Farm, which I always feel I have to be careful to add that S in because Child's Farm is something very different. It's a bit of a strange name for a company, if you ask me. Uh, but the acquisition there and uh, the this Pay, those kind of things are obviously quite different and, and a sign of it, you know, playing into that uh, burgeoning personal care market, which, you know, has nothing to do with the, the pandemic and has some structural growth trends behind it. Do we think this company from a valuation perspective, you know, there, there's interest there for the investor?
2: The... The standout line, I think, which got the market um, a bit het up this morning is, you know, they're talking about um, adjusted profit before tax to be at least in line with current market expectations. So they've had this Forex benefit as well, which has is, is helped. Um, but shares, you know, shares rose on what looked like a, a kind of half profit upgrade. I mean, it really is worth mentioning that This year's earnings forecasts; those market expectations that management is referring to are down about 15% over the past year. So, it's not quite the expectation beating statement that it sounds like. The other thing, I I think, one thing that investors could pay attention to this company is the the price to earnings growth ratio. So, it's kind of a measure of how up to speed investors in the market are with the level of earnings growth in the business, and that's pretty high. It's higher than Tesco's, and Tesco's have. I've done a better job at, um, at, you know, improving their 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 sort of underlying operating profit. Yeah, so it suggests that profit has, you know, that the profit that has flown flowed from uh, um, sort of consistent sales growth for PC Cousins has pretty has been pretty well identified by investors. I, I mean, my take is that I, I think they're pretty fairly
1: shares pretty fairly priced, if a little rich. As yes. is often the case with consumer staples yes. at the moment, which is perhaps a testament to the uh, the margins they have been able to, if not maintain, then, uh, you know, maintain at a high level than perhaps some expected. But as we said before, there, there's quite a difference between that and gouging, shall we say. Yeah. Let's turn to a set of completely different sectors now with our cover story this week, uh, because I think it's fair to say when we are looking for the next big market narrative, which is what the cover story attempts to do, that... Supermarkets, consumer staples probably aren't going to be it. That said,
2: you never say never.
1: This is a, a, a you know, a, a educated exercise in, in crystal balling, shall we? Shall we say so? As you say, never say never. But <laughs> talk through the, the piece to begin with, Alex. Obviously, we're coming off the back of this long era of low interest rates. You know, high growth companies flourishing. That's ended for been ended for a while now, but we haven't really. Got through to a sense of what might come next.
2: Yeah, I mean, you could say this piece could have been written any point in the last year plus, really, because you know it's not it's not a new story that um, interest rates are higher than they have been for you know the entire period since two thousand and eight nine. Nor is the the sort of preeminence of the tech stocks. I mean, you know, one point colloquially known as the fangs or the fan mags or whatever you want to um, put it. You know that that story. Uh, that bubble has kind of burst or that, that peak had been reached and um, we can't see that necessarily returning. So, um, I mean, the backdrop for the story is essentially the the story we're always looking for in the magazine or investors are always looking for, which is, you know, what are the next big stories? What are the, the shares and um, companies which are going to break out and deliver above-trend growth sustainably over um, over the years? and And... I mean the the um the, the tech narrative has been so sort of dominant and entrenched for um you know the best part of the past decade and a half. Um that it it's it's difficult almost to to see what the next paradigm is. I and mean, you know it's a word sort of borrowed from um, Steve Eisman, the the famous big short investor who um is who's recently been talking about what he sees as a paradigm shift in markets from High, uh, you know, a low to a higher interest rate environment and what that does to investor risk appetites and the sort of sustainability of certain sector stories. Um, so it's very hard to identify what the next paradigm is going to be. We kind of, you know, wanted to use the piece to sketch out a few of the, the, the possibilities and what might be required to sustain those um, those new paradigms. But yeah, that's you know, investing is always a bit of a crystal ball exercise, and this is a yeah. I suppose this was my attempt to to yeah to capture the 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 market mood at the moment. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, looking back, I mean, obviously it's not just tech. There have been, as you allude to in the piece, you know, not quite on a decade by decade basis, but there have been a, a series of periods in which there have been easily identifiable market leaders over the past x many decades so that doesn't mean there's going to be one again but it would very much be in keeping with the last 50 years really
2: yeah i mean there's there's always a there's always a growth story somewhere i mean if you know if we're going to shorten the era to the sort of mini drama of 2022 you'd say it's energy and defense uh and commodity stocks which had a a very good run i mean that's you know one year is not a is not a multi-year growth story that the the likes of which we're trying to identify. Um but we've seen we've seen those uh the circumstances for those sectors um uh doing really really well in the past. In the 70s, those were the sectors to own really. And then in the eighties, there's a few few stories going on. Japan was very big until it wasn't. Um uh you know the nineties maybe it's the era of conglomerates and then we obviously had a a bank um uh sort of melt up before a very, very spectacular meltdown in 2008 um, and then the chapter that we've got very used to over the last, you know, f- uh, 14 years uh, and then whatever comes next. And it might be a continuation to some degree. I'm not entirely sure myself of of, of what we are quite used to now, which is very large, um, uh, highly cash-generative, intangibles-rich tech companies which find ways to explo- exploit new large total addressable markets. Um, yeah, I think the jury is still out on whether they they are going to just sort of fade into the background, with the big caveat that it's rare for the incumbent leaders of a sector to to you know keep their place. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, what you touched on last year and energy there and commodities are one topic we talk about in the piece. There are obvious drivers there theoretically when you look at things like what, A, energy security, B, the energy transition, in practice, especially with a sector which can be pretty volatile and based on uh, volatile underlying prices, is that something that that could be achieved? I mean, it is something that we could see over the next decade. Right now, it feels like it would be a, perhaps a difficult ask, but often yeah. often uh, good investment decisions do feel difficult at the time they're, they're made.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a co- there's a couple of things w- why... I think some people are, are very bullish on the setup for um commodities and and maybe it's it's good useful to actually boil it down to sp- the specific materials we're talking about. So um you know in oil and gas um you know this has not been a fashionable sector to uh, to invest in for some time because the long term uh, the long term long term demand forecasts are so um so uncertain. I mean about 15 years ago you know the turn of the century uh, oil and gas companies were really rewarded for volume for replacing their reserves at, a, at an, an ever-increasing rate and to to you know have the companies sort of valued on that basis rather than their ability to you know generate cash and 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 uh, return profits to shareholders um but there's been you know globally there's been an underinvestment in in the space for a number of reasons and that you know given that Demand for oil and gas is not about to, to drop off a cliff, even though it, you know that would be nice if we were able to transition very quickly away from fossil fuels. That has arguably created a setup where we're going to have shortfalls in the years ahead. That story is um, is more acute, I would say in the copper market because we have actually have a growth um, driver there in the, you know if we're going to electrify the economy, the global economy. If we're gonna if we're going to start to properly tackle um uh you know the climate crisis and and the energy transition then we're going to need an awful amount of electrification and electrification requires copper um there's some estimates that the the annual global demand of the next couple of decades has got to double that's really un, it's got an unprecedented uh step up in demand for such a fundamental um global commodity so the setup there being Similar in the on the supply side, because there has just hasn 't been the the level of investment owing to difficulties of permitting the fact that so much of the um, you know the the known reserves the high grade ore has been not only discovered but um, has uh, been been uh, uh, exploited means that we have potentially a, a significant shortfall um, uh, de, uh supply demand shortfall in the in the coming years so you know this month we've seen Glencore take a tilt at tech resources big canadian copper um company uh that they you know Glencore for a, a company so almost contrarian in its in its um bets on coal and you know some of its other uh, some of its other operations. Seems to want to uh, be prepared to bet the farm and completely rip up its 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 business structure in the service of going all in on copper. Essentially, um, that seems like a pretty big signal that you know, and, and together with other investments of the the other you know diversified mining majors, that um, they all see this as a a big bull market in the years ahead. So, yeah, that's the, the long answer to the, the commodity setup.
1: Well, that's one, just one of the uh, the sectors that we talk about in the piece. Obviously, I won't go into them all now, leave, uh, leave the listener hopefully wanting a bit more. But, but one thing I, I wanted to uh, posit, perhaps, was, you know, what if the, the next story isn't about a sector but about an investment style, which maybe is getting too obtuse. But again, if the past decade has been about high growth, that's translated quite neatly into tech and all things tech. In an era of higher interest rates, you know, value investing has come back into vogue. Could it be we look back and say, oh, actually, you know, value stocks were the way to go? The second part of that question being, or is that easily, you know, distillable into certain sectors? Commodities, I suppose, in some cases, viewed through some lenses are seen as value uh, investments. Banks and financials are as well, albeit this is not the best time perhaps to uh, to be voicing that. Uh, suggestion, but you know, could it be? Could it be that it's not a sector at all? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's it could a be a style, style. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, I mean, even though I try to distill these factor factors uh, through the stock screens each week, um, I think it's a very, very hard ask, really, to to distill what we mean by value, particularly of all the of all the um, investing factors. Value is the most ephemeral and elusive and the reason being that what looks like value might be a very unstable earnings basis so a uh, base rather so so with the banks um yes their their net interest margins have expanded over the the past couple of years um but there are there are trade offs there as so we've talked a lot in the last few weeks you know on the on the liability side and what happens to their deposit base um similarly with with you know i mentioned you know mining and the potential for a boom in 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 the copper price. Well, what happens when prices uh, rise? Uh, it attracts more supply into the market, so there's more investment. There's more, um, you know, capacity expands. And at the moment, even you know, if you look at the copper price, we're in um, you know what's known as backwardation, So investors are or markets are pricing in the, the 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 copper price to fall in the coming months and I think the coming next couple of years, even though there's this long term setup for um, for you know a, a really sustained demand story, um, so yeah, the quality of the earnings is the is the is the real component to, to value, and I suppose if you are going to compare that to um, you know what what we describe as growth in the in the sense we've got used to in these these huge companies that get ever ever bigger, um, the you know the the sort of real component there is on kind of how you value you value those businesses. And if you think that the growth is sustainable and margins can be maintained, value stocks have a, you know, historically have had a rougher time at maintaining and hanging on to those margins, hence their, you know, their discounted valuations. So yeah, I mean, in in terms of style, I I don't know, I wouldn't want to place a bet on, on, you know, rule out value being a, a good place to be in the, in the coming years but then it really depends on how you define it mm-hmm. sorry really mealy mouthed
1: well <laughs> it makes sense so what i was gonna end on is is uh you know in some ways the ic's mantra which is true now more than ever in that it does all come down to stock selection ultimately which you know the the discussion of value we've just had would point to as well it ultimately depends on the individual business
2: yeah yeah, we, and, we, yeah and this is a really good point look the you know we talk about paradigms, we get very very carried away with these distinct narratives of you know the fangs you know and and within the fangs, there are multiple businesses with um you know different ways to value them they are doing different things they're growing at different rates they on you know they have different margins it's not a it's not a you know a monolithic story there um so in in looking for the next big trend and there will be the next big trend i mean it's it's inevitable it's a feature of markets um yeah we should never overlook the fact that the stock market is full of very interesting businesses doing their own things i mean i, I for the piece I, I sort of looked at the you know beneath the the sort of mar- market narrative the companies which have 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 been the most successful um over the last sort of 14 years in the uk market i mean there's three companies there which have um you know performed terrifically i mean get G- games workshop is one familiar to a lot of people um uh and then you've got ashtead and four in Im- four imprint. so i mean you can't really fit the narrative of uh you know a fantasy figurine re- retailer an equipment rental farm and the shipper of you know corporate branded hoodies into into a neat narrative and yet you know doing the mundane sometimes it being very very good in your niche is what it takes to you know to be like a serial compounder um, in the stock market so yeah it's not always about the big geopolitical um, you know complicated federal reserve interest rate stories it can just sometimes be sort of good businesses doing things well
1: absolutely well as i say that is our cover story this week there's a lot more detail in there about specific companies and sectors so look out for that But that does bring us to the end of the show today. So thank you to Alex and to Chris, and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.